0: Thank you, Gary, for reading our scripture. Gary was filling in today, and so we appreciate him stepping up and reading for us this afternoon, as well as this morning. Thank you for being here. We're grateful that you're back. Uh, Torrance, I thought you did a great job today, personally. I think you did a really good job, so thank you. And uh, I'm sure your wife's going to get you a good Valentine present, too. (laughs) Thank you for being back. If you're looking for a church home, as always, we encourage you to come back, be a part of the work here. We're so thankful for those who have joined hands with us. If you are currently a member here and at work, we appreciate that. If you're looking for something to do, we'd love to point you in the right direction. I want to ask you to think with me this afternoon for a minute or two about the concept of a biblical pattern. Some years back, there was a somewhat renowned preacher in Churches of Christ who while in West Memphis, Arkansas made a statement that from my vantage point seems to be in conflict with what the Bible teaches. He said, I reject pattern theology. Well, strange because if you look at both the Old and New Testaments there is a pattern. This whole thought process is developed at length. You and I today, we are wearing clothes that were cut from a pattern. Coins sometimes, you can take a tool or a die and stamp a coin. That's the idea that we're talking about. So, in matters of faith and practice, particularly in the New Testament, what we're saying is that there is a pattern that we are to observe. In the passage that was read a moment ago when Paul wrote to Timothy and said, hold fast the form, example, or pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. What I want to do is maybe go back to the Old Testament for a minute. And I want to call your attention to some concepts in the Old Testament that I believe underscore the idea of a pattern and to show that when we get to the New Testament, or as we are living under the New Covenant, the law of Christ, or the perfect law of liberty, that God did not lay aside that concept, but rather it is brought over into the New Testament. So think about, for example, in Genesis chapter 6. You remember the Bible says that every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. As a result of that, God said, To Noah in the long ago, and the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I mentioned this morning, I think in Bible class, that wherever you read about the grace of God, it is always accompanied by divine teaching. Noah was a good man. Noah walked with God, sought to live in harmony with his will. And yet God said in the long ago, the end of all flesh has come before me. God decreed he would destroy the world by means of a flood. In light of that, God gave very specific instructions to Noah, didn't He? You remember He said, I want you to make an ark of gopher wood. That meant no other type of wood would have been suitable. Couldn't have used pine, cherry, or any other type of wood. And then He set forth the dimensions of that ark. It was to have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It was to have three decks, a window in the ark, as well as a door on the side of the ark. Now you remember in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer said, "...By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith." Noah didn't have the luxury of drawing upon past experiences and saying, you know, I remember the last time God flooded the world. Now, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And the idea is that God gave very specific instructions to Noah. Would he have been saved along with his household had he not complied with the instructions given by God? You remember what the record says, Genesis 6, verse 22? Thus did Noah according to all, A-L-L, all that God commanded him. So did he. There was a pattern given for this patriarch to observe. Now that was during the period of the patriarchs. We could move forward in time. You remember the children of Israel, they were in Egyptian bondage. And the Bible says that after nine plagues that should have impressed upon Pharaoh, that there was a God in heaven. He sent a tenth and and final plague, the Passover. And God told the children of Israel, they were to take a lamb, a year old, a male lamb, without blemish. They were to take that lamb on the tenth day of the month. On the fourteenth day of the month, they were to slay that lamb at twilight. And then they were to take the blood of that lamb and place it upon the 2 doorpost and over the door. And God said that if you'll do that, when the destroyer comes through, He said, I will pass over you. Interestingly, just a moment ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 6, there is a commentary by the Hebrew writer on the faith and obedience and blessings that Noah enjoyed. By the same token, in Hebrews chapter 11, you remember what the record says concerning Moses? By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest the destroyer should touch them. So faith and obedience, did they have to follow a pattern? What if the children of Israel had said, well, you know what? It's really not necessary for me to take a lamb a year old. What about a female lamb? What if I just placed the blood on the sides of the door, but not over the door? Would they have been saved? No, the destroyer would have killed them along with all the other firstborn. And that's what the Hebrew writer said. That Noah, or rather that Noah complied with the teaching of God, as did Moses and the children of Israel. In Exodus chapter 25, you remember God had already given the Ten Commandments to Moses. In chapter 25, in about verse 8, God said, I want you to make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. And he said, according as I will show you. That is, according to the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings. And then he said, Just so you shall make it. In chapter 25, verse 40, God again reminded Moses in the long ago. He said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So did Moses and the children of Israel, did they have to comply with the instructions given relative to the building of that tabernacle? Well, the answer would be yes. So we have an example in the Old Testament that is, during the period of the patriarchs. There's an example during the days of the Israelites, that is, those who lived under the Mosaic economy. So here's the question. What about today? Has God given us the latitude to determine the organization of the church, how we'll worship Him, how we will be saved? Has He left it to our discretion to decide the work of the church? Well, think about for a minute, over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul said, But if I tarry long, I write these things, so that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, if you look at the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 2, Paul regulates public worship. In verse 4, God had said in the long ago that He desired all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The word men there denotes humankind, male and female. But then when he comes down to verse 8, Paul in his writing to Timothy said that men only. I will therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, He changed the terminology there. He didn't use the same word as he did back in verse 4, denoting both male and female, but rather male exclusively. And so then you look at the continuation of the chapter, and Paul would say, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. Can a woman serve in a public role in the worship of Almighty God? Not according to Paul. And by the way, that's not a cultural thing. Because he said, Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And that the woman was taken in transgression. Now there are those today that see, no, they don't have a problem with women preaching, teaching in mixed assemblies, waiting on the Lord's table, leading singing, but that's not according to the pattern. In chapter 3, you talk about the organizational structure of the church. In a very clear and concise way, Paul lays out the qualifications of those who would serve as an elder, bishop, or pastor in the church. If you go back and look at the early church, it was always a plurality of men who functioned in that capacity. In Acts 14, the Bible says that they ordained elders in every church. So what if you have a church with one pastor? Would that be according to the pattern? Well, what if he didn't meet the criterion laid down by the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7? Could he serve in that role? Not according to the pattern. In verses 8 through 13, you have qualifications set forth for those who will serve as deacons or special servants. Could a woman function in that role and be acceptable to God? There's a large church in the Nashville area a few months ago, they were in the process of ordaining women elders. I still have difficulty understanding how a woman can be the husband of one wife, but that's what the Bible teaches. So the bottom line is, whenever you get away from the pattern, you're in trouble. Who's the head of the church? Didn't Paul say in Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body of the church? Well, who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus, isn't he? In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, when Paul said he put all things under subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Who then has the divine right to serve as the head of the one body? All right, now there are those today that say, well, you know, when Jesus promised to build the church, that he promised to build the church on Peter. And so you have the supremacy of Peter. Well, I would grant that Peter was involved in that discussion. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked about his identity, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There is a play on words there in verse 18. Verse 18. The name Peter denotes a small stone, a pebble. In the original, it is Petros. But he said, I'm going to build the church upon a rock. That is, on that bedrock statement made by Peter, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The word rock there is in the feminine, Petros. And the idea is that based upon the good confession made by Peter, the Lord was going to build the church. Now think about it. Jesus is the founder of the church, isn't He? He's not just the founder, but He is also the foundation of the church. If the church had been built upon Peter, then it would have been built upon fallible man. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So what about those today who claim that we have the head of the church on earth identified in the Catholic Church? Is that biblical? Is that according to the pattern? Now look, understand something, please. In no way am I trying to talk down to anyone, or to present this, mirror, this material in a caustic way. But truth is truth. And there is no authority for any man on earth to function as the head of the church on earth. Now you can look at the Catholic Church from top to bottom. It is not according to the pattern. The Catholic Church is not the original church. It is not the apostolic church. That's the apostate church, but it's not the apostolic church. Somebody says, that's hard. It is hard. But look, Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. If we don't preach and teach the truth, then we'll all go to hell in a close embrace. That's the bottom line. So we have to present the truth of Almighty God. Paul asked the question many years ago, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? When people hear the truth, they ought to get down on their knees and thank Almighty God that they're not in spiritual darkness, but rather that somebody loved them enough to teach them the truth of Almighty God. Can you be saved if you don't follow the pattern? How so? How could you be? Now, where did people ever get the idea that we could pray to Mary or pray through Mary? That she is the mediatrix between us and God. Is that biblical? Didn't Paul say there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus? If there is only one mediator, what gives someone the right to come along and say, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to pray to Mary. Look, that's not biblical. There's no authority for that. That's not according to the pattern. The College of Cardinals. Go back and read the history. The College of Cardinals did not originate until about the 11th century. Is that a part of the pattern? Absolutely not. Well, What about a group of churches that are under one man as a bishop? Is that biblical? You see how important it is to talk about a pattern? The problem in the religious world is, quite frankly, we have gotten away from the pattern. And don't think for a minute that that's not something that has been laid to the side by some of our brethren. The other day, when I was in Dalton, Georgia, doing some work with House to House spent the night in Nashville, got up the next morning, and as I began to make my way to interstate, came out to Franklin Road, right across the street, there is a Lutheran church. On the sign, it said Ash Wednesday, February 14th. Well, there are people that celebrate what they call Ash Wednesday. They believe that they need to have a penitent heart as they approach Easter, where they celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Well, neither one are authorized by God. But as I made my way down Old Hickory Boulevard, I passed another church building with a sign out front, and guess what? They had the very same sign, Ash Wednesday, February 14th. But here's the difference. This building belonged to our brethren. Church of Christ right out front. So where's their authority for that? The problem is some of our brethren have embraced denominational tendencies. Now this same congregation, they have women that are being used in a more expanded role. They have instrumental music. Is that according to the pattern of Almighty God? So God has given us a very specific pattern. You know, one of the things that we've always tried to do is call Bible things by Bible names. We've tried to do Bible things in Bible ways. As Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Paul would say, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. That implies some things aren't good. All right, so what's the standard by which I test everything? God's Word, isn't it? What about in the realm of salvation? Is there a pattern? Remember what Paul said, Romans 6, verse 17? But God be thanked that though you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart, listen to him, that form, that pattern of doctrine delivered to you. Now, who wrote that? Paul did, didn't he? And didn't Paul say that the things that he wrote were the commandments of the Lord? So what Paul is saying to the church at Rome is simply this. You received a pattern in terms of salvation. Now either you comply with that pattern or you do not. If you comply with the pattern, then you become a child of God. But if you do not, well then what? Are you a Christian? So what gives people the right today to stand in pulpits and say, you know what, you don't have to be baptized into Christ. It's not essential to salvation. Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Recite the sinner's prayer, you'll you'll become a Christian. Is that the pattern? I see a young fellow shaking his head. No, it's not. Well, why is this so important? Because religiously speaking, the religious world says that baptism is a sign of your salvation. That you're baptized because you have already been saved. All right, if there's a pattern, and there is, can we test that principle? Mark 16, 16. Remember what Jesus said? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus placed both belief and baptism before salvation. In the denominational world, they place belief before salvation and then baptism. So which is right? The denominational world says you believe, then you're saved, and then you're baptized. Jesus said you believe you're baptized and then you're saved. Does it matter what order? Sure it does. Is there a difference in 19 and 91? You better believe it. I could invert the numbers, but there's a difference, isn't there? If I told you you owe me $91 and you said I'll give you 19, you got a nine, I got a nine. You got a one, I got a one. But there's a difference, isn't there? So what we're saying is, there is a pattern. When Jesus promised to build the church, you remember He said in verse 19, talking to Peter in chapter 18, verse 18, He spoke to all the apostles. And Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. All right, so the apostles were the recipients of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys signifying authority. So on Pentecost Day, you remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So you have divinely inspired men preaching a divinely inspired message. Peter preached the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, he pointed out that Jesus is now at the right hand of God, seated upon David's throne. He said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now Luke says, by way of commentary, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart or pricked in their heart. Well, Jesus had already told the apostles that when He left them, that He would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. They're cut to the heart. They're convicted of sin. And they ask the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? What did Peter say? Bow your heads. Accept the Lord Jesus into your heart. Say the sinner's prayer. Now you look around in the religious world today. Is that according to the pattern? Does it matter whether or not people teach and practice the truth of God? Because really that's the question of the hour. Does it matter? Obviously, there are some folks that in their heart of hearts, they do not believe that it matters. Well, who gave somebody the authority to regulate something other than a divine spokesman of God? The apostles were ambassadors of God, weren't they? His special servants. In Acts 2, verse 42, the Bible says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Are we governed today by apostolic doctrine? Yes. Were they inspired men? Without question. So when they laid down principles by which we are saved, do we have the right to deviate, to change the terms? You know, I don't believe that I'm a prophet. I know I'm not the son of a prophet. But I've thought recently, in light of some of the departures that are occurring in Churches of Christ, it won't be long before some of our brethren lay aside the importance of New Testament baptism. I mean, why not? Once you leave the truth of Almighty God, there's no shoreline. Once you begin compromising and conceding divine truth, how are you ever going to come back and say, wait a minute, we can't do that. The Bible says we can't do that. Well, what about in the realm of worship? Has God given us the latitude to just determine how we're going to worship Him? Does it matter whether or not I submit myself to divine principles related to worship? Now, there are five acts of worship spoken of in the New Testament. How did we arrive at those five acts of worship? And who determined that? Is it up to me to decide what I want to do or what I don't want to do? Do I have the latitude to dictate how I'm going to worship the Creator? Didn't Jesus say God is spirit? They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. That means that God is the aim of worship. It also means that we are the assembly. Furthermore, there's an absolute. Jesus said, God is spirit. They that worship Him must. That's not optional. That's an obligation. Well, how are we to worship Him? In spirit, that is with the right attitude. And in truth, that is by His authority. So when we engage in the five acts of worship on Sunday, are we doing that according to a New Testament pattern? Or did God say, let me tell you what, you just decide how you want to do it, and that's good with me. Is that what He said about Cain and Abel's worship? You remember Cain brought forth of the fruit of the ground, Abel brought forth, brought forth a blood offering, and the Bible says that God had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. Does it matter whether or not I decide that I can use an instrument in worship to God. Do I have that right? Can I just decide, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. I mean, what's, what's the big deal about bringing a piano, an organ, or a band in here? Let me tell you what the big deal is. It's not authorized. There is not a person on this earth that can prove, biblically speaking, that an instrument can be used in worship to God. Now, there have been a lot of elders here recently that have said, we're going to go back and restudy these issues, whether it be the woman's role, the instrument, women serving as elders. It's ironic that they all come to the same conclusion, that we've gone back and restudied, and now we've decided that God gives us liberty in these areas. Wouldn't it be refreshing to hear somebody come back and say, you know what, we've been doing it right all along. I don't say that with arrogance. But either we can know the truth, practice the truth, or we can't. And many times people go back to the Old Testament. And they ask the question, well, didn't David and the Psalms authorize the usage of mechanical instruments of music? Yeah, there are a lot of things they did under the Old Covenant. That doesn't mean we can bring it into the New let me tell you what, I can give you two verses and these two verses stand and will stand the test of time. Ephesians five nineteen, speaking to yourselves, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The word melody there means to pluck or play. The instrument that is to be plucked or played is the human heart, period. That's it. In Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. What authority do I have to come along and say, you know what, it really doesn't matter. I mean, if you want to use an that's okay. Let me tell you what, when we move in that direction, we become an apostate congregation. Just that plain. I think we've got to get back to preaching and teaching the basics, the fundamentals. And you know why? Because we got a lot of folks in the pew that just don't know their Bible. And a lot of times when they converse one with another, they're just swapping ignorance. Don't have a clue what the Bible teaches. Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now here's a question. Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? Can you defend the faith? Can you? If you were pressed this week at work, and somebody said, you know, you really don't have to be baptized into Christ, could you take them in a kind and patient, loving way back to the Bible and say, okay, here's what the Bible teaches. What about denominationalism? Does that fit the pattern, the criterion of a pattern? What denominational church today has the right, the God-given right to exist? You know of any? Were we to go back to Pentecost Day in Jerusalem and ask those who obeyed the gospel, what did you do to become a Christian? And if they were to say, well, I believed in Jesus, repented of my sins, confessed His name, and then I was baptized into Christ. And then the response was, well, what church do you now belong to? What would they have said? That's right, Brother Bill, the church. Do you know when modern-day denominationalism began? It began about 1,300 years or so after the the establishment of the Lord's church. Now, there are a lot of churches that I can find in the old yellow pages. But that's not the question. The question is, can I find the church in the Bible? So to people in denominations, my question would be, can you show me your Bible in this book right here? Can you? Can you show me where you have the authority, the right to exist? So if they don't have the right to exist, wouldn't it stand to reason that in the eyes of Almighty God they ought to shut them down? Fair? There was a day and time in this country when there were crusades that were televised. One particular individual, if I were to call his name, you'd know him. He went all over the world holding crusades invariably at the conclusion of his sermon, he would always have this to say. If you want to become a Christian, accept the Lord into your heart, come down before the stage and we'll have prayer with you, and then you just go join a good church. Who gave him that right? Now here's the sad truth of it. I know in a day and time when people don't like the, the idea of absolute truth, and no one wants to hurt anybody's feelings, You need to understand something. Those folks that responded that day, when they got to the Colosseum that day, they were lost. When they left the Colosseum that day, they were still lost. That's what the Bible teaches. Can the devil use false doctrine to destroy the hearts and lives of people? Yes, he can. And let me tell you what, not only can he, he is doing that. Does it matter what I believe? You better believe it does. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. Now look, I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm not interested. Matter of fact, I personally don't like confrontation. But these are things that we all have to know. You know, sometimes when you preach the truth, you have to get your hands dirty, if you know what I mean. There are things that we have to preach and teach. Look, I'd much rather talk about other subjects. But one day I'm going to stand before God and God's going to hold me accountable for what I say and what I do not say. And Paul said, I want you to preach the Word. The Bible speaks of the watchman on the wall. So I want you to know, you can be a New Testament Christian. Just follow the pattern. I want you to know that you can be a member of the church of Christ, just follow the pattern. I want you to know that you can worship God, just follow the pattern. But if we get away from the pattern, what happens? Imagine if you can this week, you made the decision to go to a tailor. And you instructed the tailor, I want you to make me a suit or make me a dress. And I want you to make it according to my measurements. Now, I wear a 40 regular. So if I were to do that and then come back in a week or two to pick up my jacket, and it's a 42 or a 44, was it made according to the pattern? If you had said to the tailor, I want you to make me a dress, and you came back, and the tailor had made some pants and a blouse for you, would he or she, would he or she have conformed to the pattern that you instructed? No. Now you see how easy that is? That's all we're talking about. So I want to close today by asking this question. Is the Bible a pattern? The answer is yes. One day we're going to be judged not on the basis of what the majority thinks or preaches and teaches, We're not going to be judged on the basis of what we think in our heart. I can tell you what we will be judged by. Not the doctrines and creeds of men. We're going to be judged by the authoritative Word of God. Paul said it best. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some folks might say, you know what, this is a strong lesson. It is a strong lesson. But you know, I I think that there are times when we need strong lessons. We just got to lay it out as it is. It is what it is. No apologies made. Truth is truth, and it will always be true. So if you're here today and you're not a New Testament Christian, if you can't find your church in this book that we call the Bible, you're in the wrong church. If you haven't done what they did on Pentecost Day, what was that? They repented of sins, they were baptized into Christ. They already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they confessed His name. If you haven't done that, don't leave here today thinking that you're a Christian, because you're not. If you were baptized because you were already saved, you're not a Christian. Why? Because Jesus placed belief and baptism prior to salvation. Does it matter if I'm faithful after that? Can I just choose to live any way I want and bask in the glory of Almighty God and His grace? Remember what Paul said where sin abounds, grace abounds much more? He raised this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Why? Because we died to sin. We've got to live a life that is regulated by the teaching of Almighty God. That's why when Paul wrote to Timothy... He said, but if I tarry long, I write these things so that you might know how to behave yourself, conduct yourself in the house of God. My prayer is that we would not run from the truth. That we would not apologize for the truth. But we must speak the truth in love. And why is that? Because one day, as Paul said, God will judge us according to truth. Romans 2, 2. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to come to Christ. If you're here today and your life's not what it ought to be, I encourage you, make things right before you leave this world. Won't you come as we stand and sing?